0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Okay, so if you have your Bibles um, or a Bible app on your phone, uh, I invite you to turn to Colossians 3 as we continue our study through this wonderful letter uh, to the believers at Colossae. After reminding us of who Christ is and who we are in Him in the first couple of chapters and the incredible inheritance that is ours through Christ's death and resurrection, in chapter 3, Paul essentially says the Christian faith is more than just believing the right things. This is very important, of course, but it doesn't go far enough. The acid test of our faith in Christ is not just believing the truth. It is also in living out the truth in our day-to-day lives, particularly with those who are closest to us, including our spouse and family, close friends, and people at work. Which brings us to verse 18, where Paul talks about how knowing Jesus will change how we relate to those who are closest to us, including our spouse. So would you stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today? And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful that uh, you have given us your Holy Word. That you have given us not only your Son, the living Word, but the written Word. We ask, Lord, now as we seek to understand the words that we have just spoken, Lord, that you would uh, focus our minds, that you would remove distractions, that you would soften our hearts to receive what you want to say to us, and then you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. so why do marriages typically start out so good and sometimes end up on life support? There are many reasons, of course. But the core reason is because more often than not, we say, I want what I want rather than what God wants. The Bible calls this sin. And even though our culture tries to convince us that sin, you know, is really an old-school notion. That's no longer relevant to our free and uh, liberated and progressive society. The truth is sin is still the best explanation, not only for the confusion, the the, the despair, the, the lack of fulfillment that we see in lives today, but for the hurt, the division and carnage that we see in relationships today. And in Romans 12 verse two, the Apostle Paul essentially says, if you want to live a full and and an abundant life that God has for you, if you want to have a healthy, if you want to have healthy friendships, if you want to have a healthy marriage and family, then you need to renew your mind. You need to think differently. You need to trust God and believe, God, about how destructive sin and selfishness is in your life and also in your relationships. And reprogram your mind, as it were, by deleting old patterns and habit patterns and old sinful thoughts and selfish ways and replacing them with godly thoughts and patterns and habits. And beginning verse 18 he gets really practical and he talks about thinking differently about how we relate to our spouse. He writes, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now in our present day, there are those who react negatively to this teaching of wives submitting to their husbands. Even stating that Paul had an issue with women. Yet neglecting The fact that all scripture is inspired not by Paul, but by God. Now, you need to know that when Paul wrote these God inspired instructions, he was presenting a radically new view of marriage in his day. Let me explain what I mean. In Paul's day, a woman was a thing, she was her husband's possession she had no legal rights. She was expected to submit to her husband and obey him without question on all matters. In Greek society, and in places like Colossae and Ephesus, women were things to be used and enjoyed, not loved or cherished. In other words, in Paul's day, marriage was a one-way hierarchical Relationship that was centered totally on the husband. Now, some of you having read verse 18 are thinking, well, isn't God endorsing the same thing? You know, when he tells a wife to submit to her husband? Not at all. And here's why. Well, first of all, if Paul had written this from the perspective of the culture of his day, he wouldn't have addressed women or included women at all. Verse 18 wouldn't even be there. You see, women in that day were seen as incapable of intelligence. They were seen as incapable of leadership or creativity and therefore were largely ignored. The men of that day would have said, Paul, what are you including wives here for? They would have almost been insulted by it. I mean, just the fact that wives were addressed and challenged by Paul alongside of their husbands as equals was revolutionary in that day. Secondly, when Paul called upon husbands in verse 19 to love their wives, this was equally mind-blowing in the culture of Paul's day. If you were a Greek husband living in Ephesus or in Colossae, your first response to this would have been, you want me to do what? You want me to love my wife? Are you kidding me? You see, in ancient Colossae, for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, to give himself to her and to love her with a sacrificial love would have been seen as totally ludicrous and ridiculous. You see, in these verses... Husbands were being challenged by Paul to think radically different about marriage and about how they viewed their wife and how they related to their wife. God was calling them to humble themselves, to stop being the center of the universe, and instead to put Christ, the creator of the universe, in his rightful place, at the center of their lives. And to put Christ's truth and his ways and his interests and the interests of others, including their wives, ahead of themselves. And that was mind-blowing for the men of that day. Thirdly, when Paul wrote this, he did so with the conviction that men and women are equal in Christ. You see, the domination of men over women was the result of the fall of man that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And so we do know that when, whenever we sin, there are consequences. In Genesis 3 verse 16, God said to Eve that one of the consequences of her rebellion and disobedience against God would be this. Your desire will be for your husband... And he will rule over you. Now please note, God did not say here it was his original plan for the husband to rule over his wife. No, he said one of the consequences of your disobedience is that your husband will rule over you. Male-dominated societies were never part of God's original plan. They were the result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve ruled together. After they sinned, we know their relationship was fractured. Things went sideways in relationships. And man began to rule over woman. But you see, all that changed through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26 says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of, you have, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Men and women are now one in Christ. Now, out of respect for the cultural order in that day, at times the apostles' teachings limited women's roles in certain local churches, either because some women were prideful and drawing undue attention to themselves, or because they were creating unrest, celebrating their free freedom but being insensitive and disrespectful to the culture in that community of faith. But these restrictions were not intended to be for all time and culture. In the same way that we no longer wash one another's feet when we come together like this. Good thing, or we'd still be out in the atrium washing each other's feet. In the same way that we... we, no longer require women to wear hats in church. You're free to do that, by the way, but you're not required to. In the same way that we no longer greet one another with a holy kiss. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on men and women. On that day, Peter stood up and he quoted Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This was huge. This was a huge change. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And by quoting it, Peter was not only affirming it, but he was saying that this prophecy was fulfilled on this day, the day of Pentecost. You see, under the old covenant, only selected individuals had access to the work of the Spirit. But now, said Peter, God's Spirit is available to all believers. Everyone in Christ is free to minister. A new community of the redeemed, centered on Christ, was established in which all distinctions based on gender, on age, on race, on slave or free, were all laid aside. For in the words of Paul, you are all one in Christ. This was revolutionary. William Barclay, he summarizes what all of this means for marriage. He says this the Christian teaching is that marriage becomes a partnership. It is something which is entered into not merely for the convenience of the husband, but in order that both husband and wife may find a new joy and new completeness in each other. Any marriage in which everything is done for the convenience of one of the partners and where the other exists simply to gratify. The needs and desires of the first is not a Christian marriage. And so with all of this in mind, let's look more closely at the instructions that Paul gives here. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now to submit is to willingly take second place in favor of of the other person. It's a choice. In fact, it's a gift that's given. It's a gift that is willingly offered. It's an attitude that says, I don't need to have my own way. I'll put your interests ahead of my own. Now, as I already pointed out, in Paul's day, women had no choice but to submit to their husbands. And given how they were viewed and treated by their husbands and by society in general, I'm sure that more often than not, many wives did so begrudgingly and seething under their breath. Paul essentially says to the wives, as a member of Christ's new kingdom, you no longer have to submit. But as a follower of Christ, I ask that you trust Christ, that you believe him, and you choose to submit, to put your husband's interests ahead of your own, because it will go well with you and your marriage, if you do. In fact, in Ephesians 5.21, Paul gives the same challenge to all Christ followers. He writes, submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Paul says, whether you are a wife or a husband, a child, a parent, a boss, an employee, out of your love and reverence for Christ, be different. Choose to have a humble attitude in life and to put the interests of others ahead of yourself. And then in verse 19, Paul says, husbands, love your wives And do not be harsh with them. Now, as I already said, this would have been revolutionary for a husband to hear in that day. And yet, this is the ultimate test, the ultimate act of submission for a husband to love sacrificially, to love to the point of death, to give your life for the other, even as Christ gave his life for the church. Now, the word for love used here in the original language is agape, which is a decision to love, to provide unceasing care, um, to provide loving service for the wife's entire well-being. Kent Hughes says, in the same way that Christ demonstrated his love for us, by entering our world and our experience. So a loving husband demonstrates his love for his wife by intentionally seeking to enter into her world, by listening to her, seeking to understand uh, not only her feelings, but her perspective and her thoughts. Furthermore, in the same way that Christ sacrificed his life for us, So a loving husband is prepared to make significant sacrifices for his wife, like turning down a a golf weekend with the guys in order to spend the weekend with his kids as promised and to bless his wife with a weekend away for personal time of retreat and rest. Now just look back at verse 18 for a moment. We often neglect the second half of that verse. Notice he writes, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you are not called upon to submit to anything that is not fitting in the Lord. So what is not fitting in the Lord? Well, Paul says husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh with them. So anything that does not originate in a spirit or an attitude of love is not fitting in the Lord. Anything that is harsh, anything that is illegal or ungodly, anything that is abusive or rooted in a spirit of bitterness or self-centered jealousy is not fitting in the Lord. And so this is really God's plan for marriage. Where out of our love and reverence for Christ... There is this submissive willingness on the part of both husband and wife to trust the other, to give oneself to the other, to put the interests of the other ahead of oneself, to go to God together in prayer, to go to God together to his word, receiving his wisdom and his direction and his assignments for our lives and for our marriage. Now, you know, I find it rather interesting that Paul gives only these two principles to couples that, that wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. I mean, if I was writing this, you know, I can think of about 50 principles that I would have for wives, <laughs> at least five for husbands. Just kidding. But you see, he only mentions two. And so it would seem that he only mentions these two because they are absolutely foundational to building a healthy marriage. In other words, they're like a foundation. And if if, if you, if you don't take these two areas, these two principles seriously, nothing else will really work well or right. It's based on this. In fact, in Ephesians 5, verse 22, you look over at Ephesians 5, he says exactly the same things to wives and husbands. And if you go down about 10 verses later in Ephesians 5, 33, he essentially says the same thing. He just uses one word different. And this is what he says. Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He uses the word respect instead of submit. Respect perhaps helps us to understand a little bit more practically what it means to submit. Now, have you ever wondered why he explicitly tells husbands in three separate scriptures to love their wives? Well, I don't know. But could it be because husbands tend to struggle loving their wives the way that they need to be loved? In the same way, could it be that he tells wives to submit or to respect their husbands because wives struggle most with respecting their husbands? I mean, it's a given that a husband is not only to love his wife, he's to respect her and it's a given that a wife is not only to respect her husband, she's to love him as well. But why the emphasis? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. Well, Dr. Emerson Egridge is convinced that this is the case. He says, if a couple fail to follow Paul's teaching here on love and respect they will find themselves on what he refers to as the crazy cycle. The crazy cycle happens when a wife feels unloved by her husband, which often causes her not to respect or to submit to him in return, which in turn leaves him feeling attacked and causes him to not love her back. And so the stomach churns. And so here is a husband who comes home late from work again. Or a husband who fails to remember their wedding anniversary again. Or fails to clean up after himself once again. And you see in his wife's mind, these are clear indications that he really doesn't love her the way that she loves him. Because if he did he wouldn't be so inconsiderate. Well, you see, that causes her to react in a negative way. And if she is excessively harsh with her criticism, he will say to himself, you know, not only does she not respect me, but I think she doesn't even like me. And often he will grow quiet and withdraw, which of course only upsets her more, And so the crazy cycle continues. So do you see the problem here? Without love, she reacts. Without respect, he reacts. That's the crazy cycle. And you can see it's rather easy to get onto it. So how do we get off the crazy cycle? Well, first of all, you need to commit to doing it God's way as laid out here in Colossians 3 or in Ephesians 5. Husbands, you are called to love your wife. She needs your love as much as she needs air to breathe. And when you are harsh with her, when you are unaffectionate, when you are insensitive, when you don't help her with the kids, when you spend time with everyone but her, when you don't help around the house, when you check your text messages while you're listening to her. You are stepping on her air hose. I already mentioned the word for love that Paul uses here is agape, which is a decision that says, I will love you even if you don't love me back. I will love you even if I feel you don't deserve to be loved. Agape love is loving your wife out of your love for Christ. It's reaching out to her even when she pulls back. It is serving her even when she is cold towards you or is hurtful with her words. Now at the same time, wives, you're called to respect your husband. Respect or submission doesn't mean that you become a doormat. It doesn't mean that you throw your brains away or that you throw your leadership gifts away. It doesn't mean that you never challenge your husband or that you never disagree with your husband. Neither does it mean that you allow your husband to abuse you. No, respect, like submission, is an attitude. It's speaking with softer tones. It's displaying a respectful facial expression. It's not rolling your eyes and breathing normally. (laughs) Guys, you know what I'm talking about. (sighs) She doesn't have to say a word. Just breathe. Wives, it's reacting in a sensitive, humble way and choosing your words wisely. It's refusing to control him or to make him into the husband you would be if you were the husband, which you're not, by the way. You see, wives, as much as you crave his loving affection, so he craves your admiration. You need to understand that respect is a man's deepest value. Eggerich says that this is backed up by research. He says in all of his counseling, he's had husband after husband say the same thing that the research is saying. Husbands have said to him, I'd rather live with a wife who respects me but does not love me than with a wife who loves me but does not respect me. That's how high value it is. Now, not that husbands don't want to be loved. Love is huge, but they need to feel respected even more than to feel loved. It's just the way they're wired up. Most husbands are wired up in such a way that when they feel admired and respected, they are quite prepared to die for their wives. I mean, you know, he may not get off the lazy boy to help you with the dishes, but he will risk his life protecting you from a charging pit bull or angry bear. I mean, go figure. But wives, that's why the Lord calls you to respect your husband. If you want to get off the crazy cycle in your marriage, you need to commit to doing it God's way, even when you don't feel like it or you feel your husband doesn't deserve it. Furthermore, if you want to get off the crazy cycle, you need to choose to believe the best about the other person's intentions. You need to make a choice about that. In Genesis one twenty-seven, we read, So God created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. In other words, men and women are very different. And we see things differently. For example, when a woman stands in front of a closet full of clothes and says, I have nothing to wear, what is she really saying? I haven't a clue. (laughs) No, actually, I do. (laughs) She's saying, I have nothing new to wear. That's what she's saying, okay? If a man says, I have nothing to wear, what is he really saying? I have nothing clean to wear. (laughs) Same words, different meaning, correct? Yes. And so when a couple interact with one another in life, unless we deliberately and intentionally seek to, uh, to understand each other and what the other is actually saying, we can end up on the crazy cycle when we really don't need to be. For example, husbands, when you fail to be loving to your wife, your wife, and your wife tears a strip off of you, her intent isn't to hurt you. And I know guys, you're sitting there saying, well, how do you know that? I just do, okay, trust me. No, inside, she's really crying out to you, and she's saying, I feel unloved by you right now. I can't believe That you were so inconsiderate. In other words, even though it seems like it, she's not saying, I want to hurt you. No, she's saying, I want your love, albeit in a weird kind of way. Now, wives, you need to understand when you tear into your husband, he feels hurt as well and will likely respond back either harshly or grow quiet and withdraw. And yet, deep down inside, he doesn't want to hurt you back either. No, the message that he's really trying to send back to you is, I can't believe how hurtful your words are. How much you seem to loathe me and dislike me right now. Though he may appear to be saying, I want nothing more to do with you. What he's really saying is, I want your respect. Albeit, in a weird kind of way, he's saying that. You see, by intentionally seeking to understand what our spouse is saying, we make some great strides toward getting off the crazy cycle. But even if we can't figure out what our spouse is really saying, and trust me, it happens more than we want it to, We can get off the crazy cycle by believing the best of our spouse's intention. Making a choice about that. You know, Gwen and I have been, uh, we've been going on prayer retreats since we were married. Uh, We go on prayer retreats a couple of times a year. And we talked at one of those retreats, we talked about this issue at length. And we made a very life-changing decision which has had a very positive impact on our marriage, at least most of the time. We both agreed that we loved and accepted one another and believed that we were loved and accepted by the other. We decided to embrace that truth And that we were going to do our best to never question that about each other again. And when one of us said something or did something that seemed unloving or disrespectful, we were going to choose to believe the best about the other person, not the worst. That was going to be our default position. For example, sometimes when I'm preoccupied, I mean, I just shock myself at times by what I do or I don't do. Sometimes when I come to my senses, I say to myself, why didn't I close those cabinet doors? Why didn't I put the container of frozen fruit back in the fridge? I mean, let's face it, guys. You know, sometimes if we just put a little bit more effort, paid a little bit more attention, we're just a little bit more sensitive, we'd save ourselves a lot of grief. But God knows, on that particular incident, I was preoccupied. I really wasn't trying to be unloving or insensitive to Gwen when I failed to do those things. Well, thankfully, as Gwen has come to understand and accept this about me, rather than assuming that I was deliberately being insensitive and unloving to her and reacting the usual way, which I won't describe, um, she decided that I, like most men, am from another planet, And even though she didn't excuse my lack of attention, she did extend some grace in the way that she responded to me and talked to me about this. And you see, her response, her gracious response, opened the door for me to love her back. Made it so much easier to love her back. Now, you may feel that this is impossible. Some of you are sitting there saying, you don't know my husband. You just don't know my wife. You may feel like this is impossible, but the truth is, you were a master at this before you got married. You believed the best rather than the worst of your, spouse, your, your present spouse's intentions. You gave the other person the benefit of the doubt on a regular basis. You overlooked a number of disgusting habits and character flaws. You extended grace consistently. If someone questioned the character of this person you were thinking about marrying, you got some upset and defended them. Well, what Paul's essentially saying here, look, if you chose to do this before you were married, then you can choose to do it now that you're married. Thirdly, if you want to get off the crazy cycle, then you make the first move. When you feel unloved or disrespected, you will be ever so tempted to get stubborn and withdraw. To do things like, you know, come home and go immediately to your office for the night or even stay late at work and, you know, purposely come home when everyone's already asleep. Don't do it. Don't wait for your spouse to make the first move. You act in obedience to the Lord. The husband who says, I will love my wife after she respects me is being disobedient to the Lord. In the same way, a wife who says, I will respect and submit to my husband after he loves me the way that I should be loved is being disobedient to the Lord. You see, both are saying, when the other person gets their act together, well then, I'll get my act together. But the Bible has something different to say about that. In James chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. God calls us to take the first step. Even though you don't feel like it, even though you don't think the other person deserves it, God calls you to humble yourself and to put your faith in him and to put your faith in God's word and to choose love and respect anyway. And then finally, if you wanna get off the crazy cycle, never give up when you fail. Satan's agenda is what the scripture says, is to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy you, your relationships. And when you fail, oh, does he jump all over you? He'll do anything. To knock you down and keep you down. He'll even use sometimes other people, even other Christians, to keep you down by their judgmental spirits. You know, Gwen and I we we have a great marriage, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our moments. On almost any given day, you know, we can be nasty, we can get stubborn we can stonewall, we can raise our voices, we can give an evil glare. I mean, that's just what Gwen does. (laughs) Oh, Just trying to figure out where I'm going to be sleeping tonight. Anyways. Anyways, just kidding. But no matter what happens, we both have this firm decision to make things right before we go to sleep at night. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Husbands, before you go to bed, if, if you're feel, feeling um, disrespected, tell her. You know, say something like, You know, honey, I'm feeling... Like, you just don't like me very much right now. Have I been unloving to you in some way? And then listen to what she has to say. Wives, if you're feeling unloved, well, let him know. Say something like, you know, honey, I feel like I just don't matter all that much to you right now. Have I been disrespectful to you in some way? Here in Colossians 3.13, Paul writes, bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So expect to fail. But when you do, don't give up. Forgive one another and, and ask how you can be more loving, how you can be more respectful, and then go after God's best for your marriage again. I'll close with this. Nancy Orberg tells of a particular evening that she and her husband, John, were visiting with some friends. And toward the end of the evening, John asked a question to get into a deeper conversation with the people who were around the table. This was kind of a habit of his. This particular evening, he asked, what was the happiest day of your life? Nancy's first thought in response to that question surprised her so much that she just had to be quiet for some time just to think because she had a hard time believing that the incident that came to her mind was truly the happiest moment of her life and that it carried such strong emotion for her. She thought to herself, if I don't keep quiet for a while, I'm going to cry. And so the the fellow next to her started off, and he talked about the day that he came home from the Vietnam War. He was a Marine. And he said, when I came home, that was the happiest day of my life. People around the table talked about the day they got married, the day that their children were born. And then she writes this. When everybody else was done, and it was my turn, I said, the happiest day of my life was when I was eight, eight years old. See, back then my parents were separated and moving towards divorce. I remember that year vividly because I was the only kid in our school whose parents were separated. It was so unusual back in the 60s. But that was not painful at all compared to what I was dealing with at home where I would see my dad only every other weekend. I loved my dad. My dad was an alcoholic, but he was the nicest alcoholic you'd ever want to meet. And over time, near the end of his life, he committed his life to Christ and was a changed man. My mom was a typical codependent. I was an only child. And the only time I saw my dad was when he would take me for the weekend and then bring me home. My dad would stand on one side of the screen door at the kitchen, and my mom on the other side, and they would fight through the screen door. And I would stand in the middle of them and try to get them to stop. And then I would run into the other room and turn on the television, really loud, so that I didn't have to hear them. In the third grade, I had a teacher who was a Christ follower. She would let me come into her classroom in the morning and she would pray with me. Isn't it too bad we can't do that anymore in our schools? I'm sure she wanted me to pray that God's will would be done but I was eight years old and I didn't really care what God's will was the only thing I wanted the only thing I would let her pray was that my parents would get back together again one night in May my mom took me out to dinner and my dad joined us it's the first time I had seen them together and not fight somewhere in the conversation my mom said to me what would you think about your dad moving back home And I said, I'd love it. And the next day, I ran into my teacher's room and I told her what had happened. And it was, without a doubt, the happiest day of my life. As an eight-year-old kid, it changed my life that I had both parents in my home. They kept fighting. They didn't have a perfect marriage, but they made strides, and they changed, and they grew in their marriage. Now, folks, we all know that it doesn't always turn out this way. I stand before you as one individual who did everything I could at around the age of 13 or 14 to somehow try to get my mom and dad together again, and it it didn't happen. And I'm not here to put anyone on a guilt trip if you've gone through a divorce. You've already suffered enough my focus today is on those of you who are married and you're living most of your married life on a crazy cycle my focus is on those of you whose marriages marriages where there maybe still is some hope I just want to say to you that there are so many reasons to fight for your marriage. So many reasons to say, I will forgive. So many reasons to say, I will love. I will respect. I will humble myself. I will trust God and begin to invest all that I have into my marriage rather than ignoring it. Becoming apathetic or seeking a way out of it. Would you please stand with me? Would you open your hands to God right now? And just ask Him, Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Those of you who are married, how much of your marriage is spent on the crazy cycle? Husbands, what's God saying to you about loving your wife? What are you going to do about it? Wives, what's God saying to you about respecting your husband? And what are you going to do about it? For those of you who aren't married, is there a family member? Is there a close friend that if you were to look at it objectively, you would have to admit that you're kind of on a crazy cycle with them? What's God saying to you about how you are to love, how you are to respect this other person or perhaps forgive this other person? And what are you going to do about it? Just take a moment, allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. Father, I just want to thank you for your word, your clear instructions for our lives. Lord, we need you. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been unloving, where we've been disrespectful to our spouse or to someone else in our lives. Lord, we open our heart to you right now. and We ask, Lord, for your help, your wisdom, your guidance your power to do what we can't do. Lord, we choose today to love even when we're not loved in return. We choose today to respect and to put the interests of others ahead of ourselves even when none of that comes back to us. We simply want to live the way that you want us to live, oh God, knowing that as we do, not only will we be blessed by you, but we will be a blessing to all who come our way. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.